Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. On this episode, the author of one of the most talked about pieces of legislation in the entire country. This is Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Vincent Jason, Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. That is my colleague, Vince Colonnese. And we have a very special guest to have a very interesting conversation. Vince, who do we have with us today? Joining us today is Texas State Senator Brian Hughes. He is the author of the Texas uh, anti-abortion pro-life legislation with a novel construction that has received a lot of scrutiny, now facing the United States Supreme Court. Additionally, other states think that it could be a model for legislation that has nothing to do with abortion. We'll get into all the details uh, right now with that, Senator Brian Hughes. Thank you so much, Senator, for joining us. Great to be with you guys. Thank you where, for having me. Tell me, where in Texas, what part of Texas do you represent, Senator? I represent about a million people in East Texas. So Tyler, Longview, Marshall, Texarkana, Paris are some of my cities. So Oklahoma border, Arkansas border, Louisiana border. We have 31 senators in Texas. So uh, to be precise, I represent about 900,000 people in change in the eastern part of the state, east of Dallas, north of Houston. Okay, got it. And so so one of the obviously the reason we want to talk to you today is about this legislation um, that you've designed. First of all, what does it remind us the name of the legislation and and kind of how you authored it and came up with it in the first place? Well, thank you. Glad to talk about it. Uh, we're excited. The uh, Texas Heartbeat Act, Senate Bill 8, uh, that low number means it was a priority for the lieutenant governor. He reserves those low numbers uh, for bills that are important. So we're thankful for that. And it just recognizes uh, that human life ought to be protected. And so uh, Texas has led the nation in pro-life legislation for about the last 20 years. Uh, several states had passed heartbeat laws, and Texas had not. And so we wanted to do that. Uh, you know, the, they tell us to follow the science. We're following the science. That heartbeat's the sign of life. We all have a pulse, right? And so uh, that's what the law's about. So it says that when the little baby growing inside her mother's womb has a heartbeat, we're going to protect that little life from abortion. And so uh, we passed it in May. Uh, I should say the governor signed it in May, took effect September 1st. And unlike every other pro-life law in the last 30, 50 years, uh, it took effect and it is saving little babies' lives today. So the enforcement mechanism is really what's gotten a lot of attention and made this law unique. But ultimately, it's about protecting innocent human life. We also did some important things this session in the budget to help those moms. We want to save the little babies and love and support and respect the moms. I hope we get to talk about that, but I don't want to leave that out because that's an important piece of this bill. Can, can you explain the enforcement mechanism for people who might not understand what makes it so unique? Because this doesn't involve, typically there's criminal enforcement. When a law is passed, if you, if you violate the law, you're held accountable by the state. In this case, it would be the state of Texas, but that's not how this bill works. And is it kind of a novel construction? Explain the design of it. I'd be glad to. So as you say, normally when we pass a law, it's enforced by the criminal system, right? And so uh, it's in the penal code. So if you break the law, the district attorney comes after you, or maybe the attorney general, or maybe if you're a professional like a doctor, it's the medical licensing board. It's enforced by the government. And uh, we had a problem with this because 
At the end of 2020, we had district attorneys from around the country, many in Texas, but all around the country, and they wrote an open letter saying, legislatures, if you pass a heartbeat law, we're not going to enforce it. These district attorneys went on to say that even if Roe versus Wade is overturned, we will not enforce pro-life laws. So that presented us with a problem. If those elected officials who were sworn to uphold the law, if they say we're not going to do it, uh, then the people of Texas had to respond. Now, let me point out, this was not every district attorney in Texas, not even most of them, but they tended to be in big urban counties representing millions of people. Uh, here in Dallas, where I'm speaking to you today, for, uh, the district attorney here signed that letter, among other urban counties. So we knew we wanted to enforce this law and have a better way to do it. We also uh, looked to uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals about 20 years ago, Louisiana took a similar approach, and they relied on private civil enforcement, and the Fifth Circuit said that's okay. So thanks, for, thanks for letting me give you the long answer. I, I, I'll get to the I'll get to the point here. So there's an old as a concept in English common law called ketam, and y'all are both scholarly guys. But it's uh, the concept goes back hundreds of years. It allows private citizens to bring civil actions on behalf of the common good. Every state has this concept in their consumer protection laws. Uh, the feds have it, and there's what's called the False Claims Act. And if you discover that someone is defrauding the federal government you can sue them as a private citizen. And if you prevail and prove they defrauded the government, you're incentivized to do that. And so uh, since the district attorneys, so many of them told us they weren't gonna enforce the law, we said, okay, we don't need you. So this law relies on private citizen enforcement. And so today in Texas, uh, before a doctor does an abortion, he's got to check for that fetal heartbeat. If he doesn't check and he does the abortion, that's an illegal abortion. If he checks, detects a heartbeat and still does the abortion, that's an illegal abortion but the district attorney is not gonna come after him. Instead, it's private citizens, concerned citizens. Uh, anyone who has evidence that he's performed an illegal abortion can bring a suit against that doctor. We wanna be clear, there are no suits against the mother, no suits against the mother, but against the doctor and those who aid and abet him. Civil penalties, at least $10,000. And again, this is to discourage illegal abortion. So that's what's different about this law. Uh, other laws rely on the government to enforce them. And of course, they are immediately blocked by the courts. This law relies on private civil enforcement, and that's why it's in effect today. So I think there are a couple things. Uh, first of all, I applaud your intentions uh, in terms of trying to protect lives. We certainly need to protect lives. Um, you know, of, people have different views of what that means, but uh, you know, I think all Americans and all people around the world uh want to protect life so but isn't it true that the heartbeat bill is actually a misnomer because uh sb8 particularly for sb8 uh given that an embryo because you use the word baby and you don't you're not a baby at six weeks you're not even a fetus at six weeks you're an embryo um does not have a fully formed heart at six weeks and it, you know, you want to say that doctors should check, but that flutter that you're talking about can't be heard with a stethoscope. So couldn't a doctor just argue, number one, and, and this is going to be sort of a long question, but couldn't a doctor just argue, I checked, but didn't hear anything. And also, uh, it's not indicative, that flutter is not indicative of the development of a viable heart or of a viable pregnancy. Um, the heart, you know, doesn't really develop for another six weeks. Uh, and you can't even see the four chambers of the heart at six weeks. So isn't this kind of a misnomer? 
Sorry. Great question. We had expert medical testimony before the State Affairs Committee. It happens to be the committee that I chair where this bill was heard. And a 30-year pediatrician testified that the fetal heartbeat is the best evidence that the baby will develop to term and have a live birth. And so fetal heartbeat is the term in the statute because it's cardiac activity. It's funny, a lot of the folks- But it's not say, even a fetus though. Well, well, many people say it's not a heartbeat, but they say, but it's not, so it's, it's cardiac activity, not a heartbeat. And so, and I, and I appreciate the point and I do wanna talk about it because uh, we have to decide fundamentally, where does life begin? Does the little baby magically become alive when its head is delivered, but its body is not? Or an hour before it's delivered, when all the chromosomes are there, when all the genetic information is there, when its little body is developing, uh, she's a human being. And so, again, I, that's the that's the question, right? When does life begin? If life, if that's a human life in her mother's womb, uh, we agree on this. If that's a human life, it's worthy of protection. And so that's the question. Uh, medical testimony before our committee said that's a fetal heartbeat. That's the language we used. But to your prudential question about how do the doctors do it, they are required to use reasonable medical processes. And so the doc just say, can't say, no, I don't hear it. The doc's got to use the best technology available. Rather than prescribe what that is, we just said reasonable medical technology, medical procedures, because technology is going to change. It's going to get better. One of the problems with Roe versus Wade, it's based on 1973 technology, and it's not aged very well. So again, the, the thing that we're going to disagree on uh, here is, is the language. You, you keep using the word baby you know, and you said fetal heartbeat, fetal heartbeat, meaning that it's a fetus, but at six weeks, it's not even a fetus yet. And I guess I'll, I'll just go into another question here about your heartbeat bill. And you, you talked about some of the uh, English common law and, and how that's used. Um, doesn't this law violate the doctrine of standing? It's interesting, Professor. So federal law and state law differ here. Congress, believe it or not, uh, Congress, which thinks it's all powerful and federal courts think they are too, the U.S. Congress has limited authority to grant standing. It can only be based on specific injuries in specific areas. But in Texas, our constitution and statutes are clear. In Texas, the legislature can grant standing to anyone. We've already done this. Uh, one of the examples we followed for this law was our Medicaid fraud statute. And in Texas today, this has been on the books for years, any person who discovers evidence of Medicaid fraud whether they were harmed or not, any person can bring a claim. So uh, this is a difference between state law and federal law. Under Texas law, the legislature can grant standing to anyone we see fit. Hmm. Yeah, we see in some states where the um, where the state will take up for domestic violence uh, victims that and and say, look, now we're representing your interests, yes. uh, and that's that that so that's a decision on a state by state that, level how the they establish state. standing. That's the state, Vince. Like, that's different. Like, if uh, Senator Hughes were to punch you in the face, you know, isn't it a little guy? You know, he would never do that. But if he were to punch <laughs> because you we're in on the a face, video calls, I can't sue Senator Hughes on your behalf because I didn't like the fact that you no, punched you in the face. The point I'm making is that the state can establish that it has standing in some states. What they do is they intervene on behalf of the domestic violence victim rather than the victim themselves being the one that brings the standing. So, saying, well, look, absolutely. Absolutely, yes, but it is right. It, but it that is. that's the state. But he's talking about individuals here, like it, it is, it is individuals interfering on other individuals behalf. I would just say this along the lines we're discussing. It's a similar concept because, as you know, many criminal laws also have a civil corollary. Right. If, if I if, if heaven forbid someone were to punch you, 
they'd be breaking the law, but you would also, there'd be a criminal action against them, but you yes. would also have a civil cause of action, right? For assault, That's right. or actually for battery, right? That's right. OJ Simpson had a murder trial and a civil, and criminal a civil, trial. civil trial. Exactly. Absolutely. But yeah. I, I, and I would say the difference here is, and again, it's not pleasant, but the difference here is the victim, the little unborn baby is not there to bring the claim, which makes more sense that we allow the people of Texas to stand up on the little baby's behalf. But you're right. It's very similar with a civil and a criminal uh, companion. And again, we're talking about an embryo, not a baby. Just, just want to be well. I, I mean, honestly, that. now, the, now, I mean, oh, a little, a little. Did you oh, have another oh, question, Vince? No, I was just going to say, in terms of if we're going to be clarifying on language, regardless of what you call it, it's a human. <laughs> I mean, we could just say it's a human oh, all the way through. Okay, I mean, so I mean, I'm. I think there's again, there's there's debate about that, but um, <laughs> now one of the one of the criticisms, the major criticism, Senator Hughes, of, of your heartbeat bill is that uh, there are no exceptions for underage girls who may have been raped or victims of incest or women who have been victims of rape or incest uh, and that they're still subject to this bill. Uh, knowing that many women may not be aware that they're pregnant at six weeks, uh, why are there no exceptions for, for rape and incest? Well, I want to make clear, and I want to answer your question, but first I want to say that there is a clear exception for the mother's life, for the mother's health. We made sure and address that. On the question of rape and incest, it's hard to imagine anything like that. We heard testimony in this hearing and previous hearings uh, from rape victims. Uh, we heard testimony from adults who told us that they had been conceived in rape. Just hard to imagine and, and uh, to experience something like that. And so based on the testimony we heard and, and women we also heard from privately, uh, a, a woman is in a an unspeakable situation uh, in that case. And so we want to help. We want to come alongside. We don't want to make the situation worse by taking the life of a little unborn baby. A horrible, unspeakable act has happened to that mother. We don't punish the little baby for that. We punish the rapist. And in Texas, we aggressively punish rapists. But we don't want to make the situation even worse. And we don't punish the little baby because, because of that horrible act of rape. So let me let me let me ask you about the kind of the how this this law is constructed and, and whether or not you expect it to prevail. So right now, the United States Supreme Court is is saying that uh, challenges to this law are allowed to go through the court process. But at the moment, the court is not filing an injunction against this Texas law. They're not stopping this law from being in effect in Texas. Now, this was construed in some uh, corners of the left and the mainstream press as being somehow, uh, you know, a defeat for. Uh, people who support abortion. But the reality is, it seems to me that the court process will continue. And at some point, will the Supreme Court may render a judgment here on whether or not this novel approach that Texas has taken uh, is constitutional and can stand. How do you expect it's going to go? Well, thank you. I'm glad you asked, because I really failed to give the final piece of the enforcement mechanism and why it's unique. So, and this will answer your question. We talked about how this is enforced by private citizens and not by the government. Normally, uh, when the government passes a law that you don't like, if you want to block it, you can't just sue the law, right? You have to sue the person, the state official in charge with enforcing the law. So you would sue the governor or the attorney general or the district attorney and ask the federal court to grant an injunction saying, governor, attorney general, AG, uh, you cannot enforce this law. This heartbeat law made that more complicated because there's no government official to sue right? They couldn't sue 30 million Texans. And so they made a couple of attempts. They tried to sue every state judge in Texas and say, 
federal judge, we want you to order the state judge not to accept these lawsuits. Don't accept any of these private enforcements under Senate Bill 8. They also tried to sue all of our clerks. They said, don't accept the filings. And so the Supreme Court said no. On Friday, they said, no, you cannot sue the state judge. A federal court cannot block a state court from doing its job. You can't sue the clerk. Now, here's what the Supreme Court said. They said, you can sue three state agency heads because it may be that they would be involved at some point. And I'm sorry for the long answer, but here's what the Supreme Court said. Uh, you can sue the head of the Health and Human Services Commission in Texas, the head of the pharmacy board, the head of the medical board. And the Supreme Court reasoned that, that that's because if a doctor uh, performed an illegal abortion and were sued by a citizen under Senate Bill 8 and faced a judgment, it could be that when that doctor then went to renew his license with the medical board or the pharmacy board or his abortion clinic license, he could run into problems there. So since that is state action, the Supreme Court said, yes, your suits can go forward against those state agencies. I would just say this, uh, there is no practical effect on the heartbeat law. Uh, if a doctor performs an illegal abortion in Texas, he's subject to suit by any person who can prove what he has done. And so that will continue. That law is in place. They can sue, uh, the abortion industry can sue the head of those agencies all day long, and it will not block the heartbeat law from having its effect. Can, so can it's I a ask practical you, matter, we believe it's going to stay in effect. Can I ask you directly, was this law designed to stop the Supreme Court from stopping it? It was not. Our intent uh, was to pass a law that would take effect. We were concerned about those district attorneys who said they would not enforce the law. And yeah. again, we looked at this 20-year-old Louisiana case, Ocfalope, uh, difficult to spell, Ocfalope case, where the same thing had happened. And I want to be clear, there is still judicial review. Now, some folks have said that our mechanism prevents judicial review. My goodness, our bill is enforced in the courts. Of course, there is judicial review. We, we welcome judicial review. And we believe once the Supreme Court looks at this case on the merits, not just the process, they're going to uphold it. We're going to win. It's constitutional. But no, it was not designed to prevent that from happening. Uh, since we don't rely on the state enforcement, it means you have to get your judicial review in a different way. But there's mm -hmm. still judicial review. We welcome that. We're on the side of the Constitution. I mean, come on, it, we'll, maybe we'll talk about this, but in 1973, seven old men on the Supreme Court decided to force abortion on demand on the rest of the country. It's not in the Constitution. It was not the will of the people, and uh, the people have been trying to reverse that ever since, and that's, that's, part, that's part of what this is about. That's really what this is about. So, uh, you know, again, one of the things that I praised you about earlier on uh, was... I think your sincere desire to, to protect lives. Um, again, there's debate about when that starts. I think there are certain things that are undebatable, which is that it's not a baby or a fetus at six weeks, it's an embryo. Like that's, that's, a, sci that's a scientific fact, um, that it does not have a fully developed heart. So this is not a fetal heartbeat because it doesn't have a heart. But Texas has significantly higher infant mortality than comparatively large states like New York and California. Why is that? And what are you and other Texas lawmakers doing to save the lives of born babies and children with actual hearts? That's a great question. And I'll just say this, the bill doesn't say six weeks. The bill says before a doctor can form abortion, he's got to check for the fetal heartbeat. So the doctor's got to rely on medicine to determine what that is. A lot of folks have said six weeks. We did not put a time in that we said okay. fetal heartbeat. But to answer your question, uh, we have work to do important. in Texas. And it isn't, no, thank you for letting me clarify that. We have important work to do in Texas. I wanna talk about that. 
Along with the heartbeat bill, we increased funding to the Alternatives to Abortion program. We increased funding to $100 million. This isn't talked about very much. We take federal family planning money and state money, and we give that to mothers who are facing difficult, unplanned, maybe unwanted pregnancies. We know that moms are often in tough situations. We want to help them. And so this program gives them tangible help, diapers, baby formula, baby clothes, car seats, parenting classes, job placement. If those moms choose to go the route of adoption, it's tangible help, financial help with adoption, because adoption is so expensive, so complicated. Last year, over 100,000 women and expectant mothers and adoptive parents were helped by this program. And we increased funding to $100 million, knowing with the heartbeat bill, we're going to have more need, more moms and more babies to help. And yes, we have work to do. Uh, in my district, in a rural part of the state, we don't have as good, house, as good health outcomes as in the urban and suburban areas. If you look at Texas compared to those other states like New York, it really has to do with the urban versus urban suburban versus rural divide. In rural areas, our health outcomes are not what they should be. And yes, we're working on that. Yes, we're spending money on that. I'm a conservative and I'm in favor of spending money to help those moms, to help those babies. And we're doing tangible things to do that. I'm glad you asked that because we want to be consistent. We're not just pro-birth, we are pro-life. We want to help those little babies and the moms after they're born as well. And I'm glad you said that. And conservatives need to be held accountable for that. That's important. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't happened thus far. I mean, in your state and many others, uh, it's been a pretty bad failure in terms of trying to keep, you know, lives, uh, you know, keeping the, protecting the lives of, of born babies. And I think that's one of the big objections that people, I'm, you know, as, as Vince will tell you, I'm about as, you know, kind of middle of the road on this issue as, as anybody. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think I have a nuanced kind of view, but I think it, it's frustrating when there are so many children in Texas that are dying right now who are born. And it seems like there's not a whole lot of action that's happening. At least it hasn't happened up to this point. Um, and, I, and I'll also add to that, and this will kind of bleed into my next question, and that is that the U.S. has the highest uh, maternal mortality rate among similarly developed nations. And according to data from this, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in Texas, the maternal mortality rate is above the U.S. average at 18.5 deaths per 100,000 live births. Um, now, Black women in Texas are disproportionately affected, accounting for 11% of live births with 31% of maternal deaths. Since it seems that you and other Texas lawmakers want women to carry pregnancies to term, what are you doing to ensure their health and to improve these incredibly troubling statistics? That's a great question. And we began to deal with this uh, when we saw those numbers a few years ago, when those numbers began to show the problems we had. And we We've, we created the Women's Health Program and also the Texas Healthy Women's Program. Sorry for the confusing names. And we put not only federal money, but tens of millions of dollars of state money for women's health, particularly for women's health. We went out and recruited new providers, especially in inner city and rural areas where there were less providers. So yes, you'll see those numbers. Uh, they are better than they were and we've still got work to do. And listen, I'm glad you brought it up because we have to be consistent here. If we really care about those moms and those babies, we're going to give them tangible help after the babies are born. So you'll see Texas is investing a lot of money in total hundreds of millions of dollars. But can we do more? Yes. We're recruiting providers in the inner city where the real needs are, in rural areas where the real needs are. We've got work to do. If you look at our last budget, you'll see we're increasing funding in all those areas 
to, to address the problem. It's, it's, it's serious and we're not ignoring it. I'm glad you brought it up. Right, and, and it's interesting. So 90% of those deaths are preventable, usually due to infection, hemorrhage, preeclampsia, and cardiovascular conditions. Experts have said that expanding Medicaid coverage uh, to postpartum, you know, for, for you know, postpartum from uh, six months to a full year would help alleviate the problem. Texas has the largest number of uninsured Americans and the largest percentage of uninsured women of childbearing age. Now, Texas Republicans also blocked the expansion of Medicaid from covering many of the working poor. Do you agree that expanding Medicaid under ACA would help save the lives of babies and mothers? I don't, and here's why. Medicaid broadly, my goodness, nobody, no providers want to accept Medicaid. People on Medicaid aren't happy. Expanding Medicaid would be like putting more people on the Titanic. I do want to help those moms, help those babies, but Medicaid is not the solution. We like targeted programs like the Women's Health Programs that focus on the moms who need help. But Medicaid itself, man, it's a mess. Uh, it doesn't work. Providers aren't happy. The, the money's being spent. No one knows where it's going. So yes, we've got work to do, but expanding Medicaid is not the answer in my view. More with Texas State Senator Brian Hughes in just a moment. But first, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Let me, if, if I may, Jason, I'd yeah, like to jump ahead. to a different topic, if that's I'll, cool. I'll, I'll come back to it, but go ahead. Okay, so let me ask about, you know, you've got this this Heartbeat Act in Texas. You use civil enforcement. People can, uh, and rather than rather than the state, you've explained it well, why you've constructed it that way. But what we're seeing is that other states are now flirting with the notion that they could use similar civil enforcement in order to pass laws that they're interested in having on the books. The biggest example of this this past week was California Governor Gavin Newsom saying that he wants to use this very tactic that you've devised in Texas uh, in order to limit the sale of guns in his state. He says, according to his press release, that he, it would allow Californians to sue, quote, anyone who manufactures, distributes, or sells a, uh, what they call an assault weapon or ghost gun kit or parts for damages. Uh, he said in a tweet, quote, if that's the precedent, we're going to let Californians sue those who put ghost guns and assault weapons on our streets. If Texas can ban abortion and endanger lives, his words, California can ban deadly weapons of war and save lives, is what he says. Does he have it right? Is it possible for this law's construction to be used to pursue ends like that? Uh, not successfully, it's not. You know, back in the 90s, it's been a while, but back in the 90s, the left tried to use the courts to go after gun manufacturers, and they failed. Today, we are using the courts to save little unborn babies, and we're succeeding. I don't blame Governor Newsom for being upset. But no, this works in this case because uh, Roe versus Wade in 1973, the right to abortion was made up. I mean, you guys have read the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. There's nothing in there about abortion. It's just not there. It's not in the Constitution. The Supreme Court made it up. The American people have never accepted it. And states have been trying to fight it ever since. Contrast that with the right to keep and bear arms. Those words the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Those words are in the Second Amendment. They're in the Constitution, and they've been consistently upheld by the Supreme Court. So the enforcement mechanism we used is effective against a, a weak, ill-established, or on, in jeopardy uh, right, like the right to abortion, not effective against gun rights because they're enshrined in the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court has consistently upheld them. And if you think about that, even the most ardent defender of Roe versus Wade, regardless of whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, the most ardent defender of Roe will have to admit that 
Roe is on shaky ground, like it or yes. not, it's in question. And that's why this, this enforcement mechanism is effective against Roe. Okay, so here's, here's what's interesting. As I'm thinking about this, you're right. Of course, the Second Amendment enshrines uh, the constitutional right to bear arms. Well, and meanwhile, again, abortion, I, I think abortion, you, guys, you guys aren't quoting the entire Second Amendment. I could at length if you want. We can we can litigate every comma if you like. Necessary to the the security of a free state. state. So that's that's not. I'm just saying I'm with you on the Second Amendment. All I'm saying is that there is a larger interpretation where many people can say that it is it says nothing about individuals holding, you know, bearing arms, you know, outside of a well-regulated militia due to the security of the state right well the, let me I've, and i'm sure the senator can explain it better than i could but I'll, I'll just offer my my simplistic understanding which is that the what you just read offers the rationale for why the individual liberty exists because because of that preserve preservation of the free state and when the supreme court has encountered this over and over and over again they've further established as time has gone on the value of that individual right to bear arms that's exactly right. Professor, you made a good point that that's part of a part of a larger clause. But I would and like you, I, we all agree the Second Amendment gives us that right. But whether we agree with it or not, we would all agree that the Supreme Court has consistently, as you say, uh, as you say, the Supreme Court has consistently upheld it, even recently affirmed an individual right to keep and bear arms. And they have not taken that in the case of Roe in the last 20 years, they've been chipping away at Roe. It's been going the other direction. So let me, so this is actually what, this is the other part of the question I have for you. So you just said a moment ago that no abortion doesn't show up in the 14th amendment and doesn't show up in the constitution yet you had Roe versus Wade, which establishes a right to abortion. Uh, and so therefore that's wrong, you say, but a lot of this is going to be very dependent. The success of the Texas law seems to me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, very dependent on the way that the Supreme Court considers the Mississippi abortion law. So right now they are litig- they're, they're considering whether or not to fully overturn or dramatically overturn the decisions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, all because of that Mississippi law. How close are you watching the Dobbs case in order to assess whether or not your Texas law will be considered constitutional in the future. I could not agree with you more. I was in uh, D.C. November 1st when the Supreme Court heard the procedural uh, hearing on our case on the Texas heartbeat law. And of course, one month later, that's when they heard Dobbs. And we listened to those arguments carefully. Uh, Of course, you know, so many people listen to those guys and gals and try to discern what they're thinking. And often their questions just throw us off. But that argument in Dobbs and the way the questions went certainly indicate that the Supreme Court is going to do something big, whether it is upholding the Mississippi statute and allowing little babies to be saved at 15 weeks or whether it's completely overturning Roe, they're definitely going to do something. And yes, I believe you're right. And, and it, we, don't, uh, we don't know exactly how the Supreme Court will do it, but I think you're right. We're all watching that Dobbs case because the Supreme Court is going to do something significant. Hopefully, they'll overturn Roe versus Wade. And as you as you guys so well know, that doesn't mean abortion goes away. It just means that each state makes its own decisions, uh, puts it back to the states where it belongs. But I agree with you. That Dobbs case is the one to watch. Yeah, it'll be essential because if they, you know, if Roe versus Wade isn't overturned, then then the Texas law becomes more challenging in the court because you, you know the argument that you're making right now, there is no you know constitutionally protected right to abortion. The court's going to say, sorry, there actually is kind of one. And courtesy of, of Stare Decisis and Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that's the, the battlefield you're on right now. That's the question. You know, you know, in Casey, 
in that Casey case, right, in 92, the Supreme Court said, if we were considering Roe for the first time, we might go a different route, but it's become part of the fabric. So they took the view that in 92, that less than 20-year-old precedent, stare decisis, was more important than 200 years of precedent. And you know this, even Justice Ginsburg, who was a, a believer in abortion rights, was not a fan of the way Roe was reasoned. It's bad science, bad law. And again, we're, we'll just speak freely. In the 1960s and the 1970s, the Supreme Court was discovering a lot of rights in the Constitution, a lot of stuff that wasn't there. And the Supreme Court has moved away from that and moved toward textualism and the words mean what they say. And Roe versus Wade is an embarrassing relic of that part of our history. The Supreme Court can't just make stuff up. And we hope that the Dobbs case is the one they'll use to put Roe to bed, put it on the ash heap of history where it belongs. So, I, oh, go ahead, Vince. No, 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 go ahead. You sure? I didn't say anything. I, there was some sort of weird noise that made you think I said something. I didn't say a word. I was waiting for Dr. Jason Nichols with bated <laughs> breath. Okay, great. Um, so you, you mentioned, you know, California and you said that, you know, that that would be unconstitutional. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what your opinion is on ghost guns, on, on people being able to buy, you know, gun parts from different places and, and make guns without serial numbers. Like, doesn't that, I mean, as a person who's pro two-way, I still think that that makes us a whole lot less safe. And so I would, if you're talking about protecting lives, which is what your bill is about, why would you be against someone doing the exact same thing to prevent the construction of ghost guns that don't have serial numbers? That was a great point, Professor. And you and I know that when the Constitution says we have a constitutional right, the Supreme Court has held that the courts can place reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions, right? We don't have tanks and, you know, that kind of, that kind of weapons under the Second Amendment. So I'm with you. There's an individual right to keep and bear arms. Now, where that line is drawn, uh, you know, that's something we're going to have to fight about. But no, forgive me. I was speaking about uh, the issue of Governor Newsom in California trying to use this mechanism against the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, details are going to have to be worked out, of course. But my only point was this mechanism is not effective against a well-established constitutional right. Right. So, but, so we're, I just want to make clear, we're, we're in agreement there about the ghost guns and, you know, the fact that the word regulated is actually in the, the, the second amendment, that there can be regulations to gun ownership. Professor, even, even, you know, this, of course, we agree, even free speech, the, the proverbial, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? There, mm -hmm. there are reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions, of course, of course, we agree on that. I believe that that you can't yell fired in a crowded theater, though, is like one of the worst examples in Supreme Court history, <laughs> because it, you actually can yell fire in a crowded theater. The, the case in which that was decided was eventually overturned uh, in, in favor of free speech. So it's just it's crazy. Well, there, there are limits to free speech. You know what I mean? Like, you know, of course, slander, libel, you know, so this idea that free speech is completely free yeah. is is not true. Right. That's what I think Senator Hughes was getting at. And, and it's, it's freer here than anywhere else. And we want to keep it that way. But y'all are right. There are some limits. And, and Vince, that's a great point. The one everybody remembers is the one that's not the law anymore. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm a big, big fan of free speech. Try to defend oh, it when I can. Oh, um, hey, me the, too, man. Me too. Let not me, to, let not me. to be offended. You can say stuff I disagree with. I'm not going to try to shut you up with the government. We'll have a debate. And I do remember this one. The yeah. answer to bad speech is more speech, not enforced silence, right? That's right. I'm with you. Free speech is king. That's totally right. Okay, so 
Let me let me go back to the issue of abortion for a moment, because obviously that's the big reason we, you know, we wanted to chat with you. Uh, you established this, you authored this bill, and the idea is it's a heartbeat bill, right? Because you'd like to begin these protections in Texas at the moment that a fetal heartbeat is detected, a human heartbeat, to spare us of the semantics debate. Uh, yeah, but it's not semantics. It's like well, science. it is. A, it's literally <laughs> it's a not semantics, semantics though. No, it's I'm not. Science. No, I'm, it's no, not here. a fetus. Let me and say it's this, not Jason. A heart. Jason, I'm not trying to diminish the value of your debate. I'm just saying that the semantic discussion of which word we use is eradicated if I just say human heartbeat. So. Let me. So my my only point is, you've established that the law exists at at, with, at the point at which you detect that human's heartbeat. But is that really is that the limit for you? Because is, do you want to go further? Is really my question, Senator. Because in the future, do you want to figure out a way? I assume by law, of course, right. to ban the practice of abortion entirely in Texas. We believe that life begins at conception. Uh, if we go anywhere other than conception, it's a question of degree. A little one-month-old baby is not fully developed, can't live on her own, but of course we, it's unconscionable to think of taking her life when she's been delivered for a month or for a week or for a day or for an hour. So after conception, right, it's just a question of development. All my chromosomes are there, my hair color, eye color, sex has all been determined. It's all there. I'm just developing. So yes, you bet. We believe life begins at conception. Of course, we're always, we always have to make sure that we're thinking about the mother's life, the mother's health. But yes, uh, I believe Texas in many states, uh, given the opportunity, I believe would, would uh, go back to that fundamental understanding uh, that life begins at conception and should be protected from conception to natural death. That's right. Okay. And that, of course, will be dependent on the, uh, the will of the people of Texas and That's the consent right. that they give you. For something like that this is what the legislature does but in Maybe terms of your personal wishes it's right. to see an end to abortion well, i'm so glad you said that this is a democratic process the people that elected me uh know what i believe and believe the way i believe on this issue if they don't they'll send someone else i'm glad you said that it's not i don't get to decide right right now while i have this office i have the privilege and responsibility of casting these votes on behalf of 900,000 texans but before long they're going to send somebody else and or if, if I don't do what they want, they're going to send someone else in my place. So you're correct. It's not what I want, but the states will have that right. And I'm one who believes that life begins at conception. Will there, will there be, I'm sorry, Jason. No, I, no, no, I, go ahead. It's courtesy of the delay. Sometimes we step on each other. <laughs> will there um, be other laws that you try and construct that have similar enforcement mechanisms? Have you begun thinking about Okay, man, this seems to work. This civil enforcement, at least, it prevails for now. Um, you know, are there other areas that you want to start using civil enforcement as a means of achieving your policy priorities? Well, in 2019, I carried Senate Bill 1978. It was colloquially known as the Chick Fil A Bill, and it's the law today. And it says any person can bring a suit to enforce the right to religious freedom. That law says that the government cannot discriminate against you because you give money to a religious organization or because mm -hmm. you affiliate with a religious organization and that can be enforced by any person bringing a civil suit so yes yes we are we think this is a this is an appropriate mechanism and again this has been in common law and in state uh, consumer protection laws for decades so it's nothing new it's really nothing new uh, and again if we're talking about uh, uh you know rights to the constitution need to be enforced you know, it makes sense. So yes, it's it's a tool. It's not necessary in every case or appropriate in every case, probably, but we have used it before. Yeah, I, that's one of my, I think my concerns about it is the idea that um, 
this mechanism is going to be abused, you know, and there's going to be, uh, and, and I don't know that there is a way to stop that. And I understand that you have your ultimate goal of ending abortion, um, which, you know, like I said, I, I believe 100% your goal is to protect life. And that's your understanding of life. And I, you know, and that's one of the things that I think is missing from this entire debate and entire discussion is the assumption of good faith from both sides. You both know, sides. both sides call each other evil instead of saying, you know, pro-life people saying, I understand uh, to pro-choice people, I understand your desire to protect, you know, civil liberties, bodily autonomy, and things like that. You never hear that from from the right. And rarely do you hear from the left, people saying, I understand that you believe that life begins at conception and you want to protect life um, and have a, a debate understanding, um, oh. you know, good faith. Professor, My question, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, you're so right about that. And I was talking to a friend of mine in the Texas legislature, uh, happens to be a Democrat and she takes a pro-choice view and we get along well, we agree on some things, not everything. But she and I had discussed this and we realized that so many times we talk past each other. And I, I'm sorry, I just want to amen what you said about good faith. Uh, we don't hate the other side. We don't believe they're evil. We have a fundamental difference on this, uh, but, but you're correct. We can have a, a discussion and listen to each other and learn from each other and hopefully get to the right place. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to amen what you were saying. Go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and, and I think, you know, what we're seeing in California, it seems like you, you disagree with it. But my question is, I don't think that this is going to stop. I think people are going to use this as precedent that this is going to be, you know, go in many different directions. Um, and we're going to clog up the courts and everybody else trying to interpret these laws because it's going to go in a million different directions. And, you know, for people who are pro-choice, you know, this is the worst direction. But I think that, you know, this, this is going to get out of control. How do you stop this? from getting out of control and individuals trying to cash in, you know, and, and sue other people right, right. For, for no reason other than I'm trying to cash in. For example, I think I was reading some convicted felon in, in like Oklahoma sued Planned Parenthood because he was like, hey, I want to be the first to cash in on this bill. Right. right. You know, uh, I, I think that's kind of troubling, don't you think? It's a great question. I would just say this. All the rules are still in place about frivolous lawsuits, about baseless lawsuits, and the court still has authority to dismiss a lawsuit, to make you pay the other side attorney's fees, to sanction lawyers. So the good news is all those rules are in place. As you know, today, today in America, anybody with 200 bucks can file a lawsuit. You know, you can sue me. In fact, I've been sued. You wouldn't, but I've been sued quite a bit. Uh, over this bill, but, <laughs> well, the but, conversation's not over, Senator. Don't preclude the entire <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. But, so to your, yeah, anybody can file a lawsuit. The good news is there are rules in place about frivolous lawsuits, baseless claims. You can have to pay the other side's attorney's fees. The attorneys can get sanctioned. So I want to be clear on that. In, interesting, though, uh, you talked about the Constitution, the role of the courts. If you read that opinion from Friday, uh, the Supreme Court uh, could go either way. They could have said, Yes, federal courts can block state courts from acting. They can stop this. We can stop laws we don't like. But instead, the Supreme Court, in the 5-4 part of that ruling, they took they reaffirmed cases that limit the role of the federal government, limit the role of the courts. And so it is that pro-life aside, heartbeat bill aside, that opinion Friday 
is going to reverberate for a long, long time. And I believe in good ways. I think, I think we all agree it's going to be more liberty for the states, more liberty for the people, and uh, more liberty for the legislative branch to do its job without being uh, improperly influenced by the judicial branch. So I know as Americans, we continue to debate these things, try to get it right, but that was a watershed ruling. And I think it's going to affect the things you're talking about. And so I also want to ask, is there uh, any effort, you know, we, we disagree on, on Medicare, uh, excuse me, Medicaid, and uh, we disagree that perhaps, and, and you seem to disagree with a lot of the experts who say that expanding Medicaid will actually help. Um, many of the, the epidemiologists and, you know, all the smart folks, they all say that, you know, six months is not enough, that it needs to be a year postpartum, and that will actually help with some of the maternal deaths. But what do you, are, what are you, is there anything going on in Texas where they're expanding access to contraception and making it free so that you can, people who don't want pregnancies don't have to go through them? Great question. So about 10 years ago now in Texas, we went through the budget and we found areas where Planned Parenthood was getting money from the taxpayers. And again, Planned Parenthood, some people love them, some people don't love them. They do different services, but even folks who are pro-choice tend to be opposed to government money going to fund abortions. And so we realized that when, when state dollars go to Planned Parenthood, even if it's not for abortions, it frees up other money for abortions. I'm getting to the answer, stay with me. And so we went through the budget and we removed all that funding from Planned Parenthood, uh, tens of millions of dollars. But then we came back the next session and we doubled funding for women's health program, for family planning, uh, for all those services. We set up more providers and yes, needs-based free for the women who cannot afford it. So the answer to your question is yes. While we, we took uh, elective abortion providers out of all those programs, we put more providers in and we doubled funding. I wanna be clear, we double funding for family planning, for women's health. So yes, there's always more we can be doing, but to answer your question, yes. In Texas, we recognize that and you'll find that in our budget. Fascinating stuff. I, I uh, Senator, I, I appreciate this. You're in the middle of a, you know, a big nationwide scandal around the around this uh, legislation. So, you know, we're really appreciative of you spending some time with us today to talk about it right at the center of the news. And of course, like obviously you knew you needed to come and talk to Vince Connors and Jason Nichols uh, to, <laughs> to hash it out. Uh, but I really appreciate uh, the back and forth that we've had today. Jason, any any exit questions here? Should we thank the senator? No, uh, but I, well, we think we should thank him, of course, and uh, we definitely want to bring him back to talk about more of what's going on uh, in the state of Texas. Yeah. There's so many other issues, you know, and, and one of the ones that I would love to talk to you about is voting rights uh, and yeah. some of the changes that have been made, uh, you know, in the state of Texas that are going to arguably disenfranchise uh, a lot of people. So I think there's a lot of discussions that we can have. And, you know, you were a great guest. It was, you know, uh, a great conversation. I'm very happy that you answered uh, all of the questions to the best of your ability, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, man, I enjoyed you so much. I'm honored you'd have me on, and thank you both. And I, I'd, I'd love to come back. I hope you will have me back. Thank you we, so much. Absolutely. We'll, we'll and, do it. Thank uh, yeah, you. Happy holidays. You yep. know, keep yourself safe, you know, while you're out there, maybe getting on the slopes. And, uh, <laughs> you. you know, we really appreciate you. Texas State Senator Brian Hughes, thank you, sir, very much. Thank you. Thank you.